Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You with Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come to You in Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. Lord, may we see You this morning. May we not see our stories and all of the issues and the challenges and the difficulties that we're faced with. May we see You, the resurrection and the life. May Your story subsume our story. And so open up our hearts, open up our minds, Fill them with Your Word and with Your Spirit. And may we sense Your presence. May we sense that resurrection and that life. And so may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to open up your Bibles or your service booklets to our epistle reading this morning. However tempting it is to, to pick up any one of these passages that we've heard this morning, we're going to focus our time on the epistle reading this morning. So if you would turn to Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. Paul poses a question. Do we continue to sin that grace may abound? Do we keep on sinning because we are not under the law, but under grace now? He says, by no means. We must change. That is what he's after. He's dealing with the reality that we must change. Everything that we believe about the gospel depends on this change. Paul is broaching the subject of change, transformation, sanctification. This is the subject of our text. We are confronted with a predicament. We need to change. But the question is, how? How do we change? Do we, place, do we place our hope in legalism or licentiousness? Or do we place our hope in the Master? Yes, we must draw strength from the oneness in Him. That's what Paul is saying. We are united to Him. We are no longer under the dominion of sin, alienation, and isolation. As our to-be-a-Christian catechism says, we are no longer hopeless. We are no longer guilty, lost, helpless, and walking in the way of death. Yes, we are united with the Master. We are mastered, and we are given means unto eternal life. In our reading this morning, we're given indispensable doctrines that undergird the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes at the heels of two questions. 
First, what shall we say then in verse 1? 14 verses earlier. Paul says, what shall we say then? And second, in verse 15, he says, what then? That's the first question that he poses. You see, Paul is not only confronting two different types of people who are criticizing him, he's also unpacking dual doctrines of the Christian faith. There are dual doctrines that undergird the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is unpacking this. In verse 1, Paul confronts the Judaizers, the Jewish legalists. They believed that the law was their hope and attributed too much value to the law. How often do we do this? How tempting this is. Today, these are those who view that the Christian faith is simply moral and ethical. Their focus is on moralism. Perhaps they reduce the gospel to just a social matter, to social activism. It comes in a number of ways, but they focus on simply moralism. But the gospel is much more than that. And in verse 15, Paul's confronting the Antinonians or the Libertines. These are those who believe that it doesn't really matter what you do because you are under grace now. You can live as you wish. You need not to worry about walking obediently. And these are those who may talk much of the Christian faith, but they are not claimed by it. It doesn't claim them. It doesn't possess them. Their focus is merely on experiencing therapy. Just feeling good. Oh, I'm not going to commit myself to walking obediently because it's too much of a struggle. It's too difficult. It makes me feel poorly. You see, this may come in a variety of ways, whether it's the moralism of the Judaizers or the therapy of the Libertines. On the right, it may come as those who overvalue customs and traditions and rituals to think that that is what's going to make us good. And on the left, it may come as those who reduce the gospel to social activism or even experientialism, therapy. Here, Paul gives us an example of what true gospel preaching looks like. It always exposes these two false gospels, legalism and licentiousness. And this is what we are prone to hold on to as our hope. But the true gospel, the true preaching of the gospel exposes these things. It evokes the question of what shall we say then or what then? It's not reduced to moralism or therapy. No, it is about transformation. It's about how people change. It's not through the law, but through the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, we can draw strength from the fact that we have not only been freed from our enslavement to death, but also freed unto glorious, our gloriously good news, enslavement unto eternal life. 
We've been freed from, and we've been freed unto. Two things that are happening here in the gospel. In the first 14 verses of this chapter, Paul emphasized that God's grace does not permit them to continue in sin. Why? Because they died to sin, he says in verse 2. When they were baptized in Christ Jesus in verse 3. And because of this, sin will no longer have lordship over their lives. For they are not under the law, but under grace. Sin no longer has lordship. It no longer has dominion. They've been freed from sin. Simply put, the law does not keep one from sinning. And neither does grace permit one to continue in sin. It's the latter portion of this proposition. That grace does not permit one to continue to sin. This is what Paul now turns to in the final nine verses of this chapter. For which we now look at. You see, the first half focused on the freedom from sin, where the second half of this chapter focuses on freedom unto righteousness. This is how people are changed from sinners to saints. It is God's grace that ensures that we not continue to sin. Paul is using the tense present active indicative here. He's talking about practicing sin, continuing to sin. Certainly, we have not been fully consummated yet. We have not been glorified yet. But if we be under grace, we are not to continue to sin. It's God's grace that we are to grow in love of righteousness and commitment to His Word. So what are the lessons that we are to learn The first lesson that we are to learn is that our change comes from our Master. Why? Because Paul says that you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You see, the great danger of sinning is that it leads to destruction and death. The great danger of continuing to sin is that it will destroy you and it will kill you ultimately. And here we see how the very identity of humanity is dominated by power. That is what Paul is after as he's revealing to us how we are to change. He says, first, your very identity is dominated by power. Like it or not, all of us are dominated by a master. We are all slaves. Every one of us. The question is not whether we will have a master, but which master we will serve. Serving sin leads to death. Serving God to life. There's no neutrality. One is either under the influence of sin We're under the influence of righteousness. There's no independent freedom. There's no will that is independently free. No, our wills are in bondage. They are either bound to sin or bound to righteousness. And this is why the grace of God matters. 
Because the children of God who were once dominated by sin are now dominated by the power of righteousness. Did you hear that? There's been a transference of enslavement. This is the good news. We are now dominated by not our power, but by the power of righteousness. In an age of questioning human identity, here we find the answer to our predicament. We are either compelled by sin or compelled by righteousness. If we be children of God, then we must be claimed. We must be possessed. We must believe. You see, justification is by faith. Righteousness is by faith. Clinging to those promises of Christ for which He claims you. Think of the countless hours that we have given to seek or that that we give as people to seeking significance and success and satisfaction. If we believe in Christ, then sin cannot master us. We cannot be turned into ourselves, but must be turned outside to Him. We must not rest in what we can achieve, you see. But we must rest in what He has achieved. God's grace is the well that is not only satisfying, but changes sinners to saints. The point is not you finding significance or satisfaction or success. The point is that He cares for you and that He claims you and that you can rest in Him. And if we think that the identity crisis is simply a matter that concerns those people on the outside, the unbelievers, the non-Christians, and the secularists, well, think again. When Paul is speaking of the human condition, he is speaking to the church at Rome. When Ezekiel is prophesying to the Valley of Dry Bones, what do we read in verse 11? We read that he is speaking of the whole house of Israel. And when Jesus commands dead Lazarus to come forth, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to his dead, beloved friend. Make no mistake, our enslavement is of fundamental importance. This is an important truth that we must not overlook. When the the Eucharistic liturgy of the Anglican Standard says perfect redemption, we're not using the Anglican Standard this morning, we're using ancient renewed, but in the Anglican Standard it says perfect redemption in the Eucharistic liturgy. That is describing the transference of our slavery. Once we were dead in sin, we were enslaved to sin, and now we have been redeemed perfectly as those who are enslaved to righteousness. We were dead in sin. We could not get away from sin. We could not stop practicing sin. But thanks be to God that He has made us alive in Christ. We were once enslaved to sin, but because of God's undeserved favor, We are now enslaved to Christ. 
See how this tells of our fundamental purpose? In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says that we were created to enjoy God forever. And you know what enjoying God forever looks like? Serving God. We were created to serve and enjoy God. Not to serve sin, not to serve Satan, not to serve our flesh, not to serve the world. That is destruction and death. But to serve God, that is everlasting life. It's a great and a foolish mistake to overlook or even to confuse that humankind is mastered by spiritual forces. It's, it is a great mistake to overlook this and to confuse this. However frightening it may be, it is favorable for us to know that we are enslaved. Why? Because the Master has freed us. He's freed us from sin. But He has also freed us unto righteousness. He's freed us from and He's freed us unto Himself. Yes, we must draw from the strength of the atonement. We are at one with Him. We must draw from the strength that we are united to Him. We are not just slaves of a Master who cares not for us, but we are slaves of a Master who not only cares for us, but has made us and is making us like Him. Yes, we are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And if we are justified, we are being sanctified. We are being made like Him. It's not by any work of our own, but it's by the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. Paul asks, are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And he says emphatically, by no means. Absolutely not. It is because we are under grace that we cannot continue to sin. Yes, it is through the undeserving kindness of God that He has made us repentant. Isn't that what Paul says elsewhere? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Because of His loving work, we are made slaves to Him. Because of His undeserved grace, when we grasp that, we are drawn closer and closer and deeper and deeper into the union that we have in Christ. He has freed us from sin and He has freed us unto Himself. God's grace is not only liberating. It's not only a liberating power. It's a constraining one too. He keeps us there in His righteousness. Paul says that we are to walk obediently. We cannot shy away of living out the obedient life. And this is why there's great danger in sinning. Because it goes against the very nature of God. If we be united to God, then we cannot practice sinning. If we continue to practice sin, then we must question who is our master. How can we expect to be liberated and constrained by God if we, do not, if, if we are not dominated by Him? He makes us like Him. So we cannot continue to sin. It will lead us to death, not life. We must ask ourselves, do we desire righteousness or do we desire sin? 
Do we stand under grace or do we stand under the law? Are we on the road to life or are we on the road to death? If the reign of sin in our lives is to be overthrown, then the law must be fulfilled and its power over us must be destroyed. We must be freed from sin and freed unto righteousness. Yes, we must feed on Him in our heart by faith with thanksgiving. We must grow in our love of righteousness and in our commitment to God's Word. And this leads us to the second lesson that we learn. And it is that our change, which comes from our Master, has real means of grace that matter. There are real means of grace that matter, and this is how loving our Father is. He showers us with means that strengthen us, that strengthen our faith. If, our, if we are justified by faith, if we are made righteous by faith, how good is it that our Lord gives us real means that strengthen our faith? We read in verse 16 that we are slaves, slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we are to be apathetic? Does it mean that our decisions don't matter? In verse 17 and 18, we hear that since God has transformed our hearts, we are able to grow in our love of righteousness and our commitment to God's Word. We are able to obey, church. Our decisions matter because we have been set free from sin. Our wills are no longer in bondage, but have been made free to Him. In the first lesson, we learn that one is mastered. In the second lesson, we learn of the means that one is mastered and how it matters. Just as the Holy Spirit breathed life into those dry bones, so does the Holy Spirit transform us from the heart so that we are free to love, obey, and commit ourselves to God's Word. The means by which our faith is strengthened, the means by which our change happens, is by the Word and the Spirit. That's the means. While the Spirit of God is not mentioned in our Romans passage, it was the Spirit of God that gave life to those dry bones, was it not? When Ezekiel prophesied over them, not only do we see the Word, as Ezekiel is told to prophesy to those bones, but we see the very breath of God, Ruach, Spirit of God bringing life to those bones. When God spoke creation into existence, it was the Spirit of God that was hovering over the face of the waters. God spoke, the Word went forth, and it was the Spirit of God that was there too, hovering the waters. So if we wish to have the life of the Spirit, then we must have also the life of the Word. There's no division. They belong together. You cannot have one without the other. The means by which one lives is always a telltale sign of the one who masters him. Are we obedient to the Spirit? Are we devoted to the apostles' teachings? 
Are we displaying the very character of God that has been revealed to us? Have our hearts been transformed? Do we love righteousness? Are we committed to submitting to the teachings of God's word? Child of God, the means by which we are to grow in righteousness and sanctification is through the word and the spirit. So as children of God, our decisions matter. How encouraging that is. Because there's been this transference of enslavement, because we are strengthened through the word and the spirit, we are now empowered to make decisions. Our decisions matter. We are no longer enslaved to sin, to destruction, and to ultimately to death. We are now enslaved to power of righteousness. We can make decisions that matter. We've been redeemed, you see, revalued. And this is made gloriously reasonable as Paul speaks to the church at Philippi. Let us make this reasonable to everyone, he says. You've not only been redeemed, This has been made reasonable to us and we will be rewarded. You see, our decisions have been redeemed. We are no longer like fish in a fishbowl. We have been set free into the vast ocean of the Almighty. Not only have we been delivered from that make-believe world, but have been given all authority over all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions. Yes, we have been redeemed and revalued and reauthorized We have been authorized to serve, but not just to serve. We have been authorized to reign. This is about the atonement of God. We have been made at one with him. Our decisions have been redeemed and our decisions have been gloriously reasonable. We must not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of our minds. God has made this reasonable to us. If the Spirit of God is to minister to our hearts, then the Word of God ministers to our minds. If we are to walk obediently, then we must be made strong in the Lord. We must rejoice always. Yes, let us rejoice. We must make our reasonableness known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. He is working and acting in our lives He is strengthening our faith. He is making us like Him, sanctifying us. He has given us eternal life. And He makes this reasonable to us. Our decisions matter. And our decisions will be rewarded. And so let us walk by faith, not by sight. Let us choose not our deserved portion, Don't choose your deserved portion. Daily choose the power of the Holy Spirit, the free gift of God that is in Christ Jesus. Choose that undeserved portion. Yes, our decisions matter because the children of God are transformed from the heart. There is a conversion that happens. This is why Paul says he transforms us from the heart and then it flows out to the outside, then we are able to make powerful decisions that matter. 
We are able to grow in our love of righteousness. We are able to grow in our commitment to God's word. We are able to walk obediently. Let us draw strength from the oneness that we have in Christ, our master, who nourishes us with word and spirit. The third and the final lesson that we learn is that our change, which comes from our master, has a significant outcome. We're given the ultimate importance of this change. In verse 20 to 22, we learn that the result of slavery to sin is death. But the outcome of slavery to God is eternal life. The contrast is stark. The chasm cannot be be any more different. It cannot be further apart. One way is death. And the other is eternal life. But the subject for which Paul is now after is not the outcome, and neither is it the fear-inducing change that that he began with in verse 15. That's not what he's after. No, his point now is not the change that is needed, but the free gift of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He sums up the entire argument with this memorable verse, He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice how he moves from us, our predicament, our challenges, the impossibility. He moves from us to him. He moves from focusing on change to focusing on the one who makes change happen. That's living under grace. If we're to live under grace, then we must study our Lord more than our dilemmas. We must be captivated by the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. He is not only the what. He is not only the why. He is also the how. We can never stand a chance of changing if we do not live under the grace of God. But how prone are we to returning to the law? Let us renounce living under the law today and let us renounce it every day. Let us renew our minds daily to live under God's grace by studying the God who saves. By receiving the Word of God and receiving the Spirit of God. Church, we live not by our deserved portion, but by our undeserved portion. We live in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we believe. We've been justified by faith. Yes, we believe that He has claimed us He has justified us. He has changed us from the heart out. He claims us, converts us, and communes with us. We have eternal life. We believe in Him. We dwell in Him. Thanks be to God. We have not our deserved portion. Instead, we have Him. Amen.